0: Well, good morning again. So apparently, sometime over the last month or so, they added wood to the pulpit, and I did not realize that until I picked it up, and I was like, oh, good night. About to pass out. Um, it's, my name is Stephen Watson. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Grace Bible Church. I am over groups, discipleship, a few other things. Uh, right now, also, as many of you know, we are planting a church in Harker Heights this year, uh, so we'll be... We'll be sending out some members of Grace Bible Church in June to start that new work. Uh, so we're pretty excited about that. If you want to know more about it, I think it's on the loop that there is a, uh, there's an interest meeting in, on March 10th. Chap- <clears throat> I'm ready to preach uh, on March 10th at 5 p.m. We'll have, another, we'll have another interest meeting. Then if you've been to the first one, I'd encourage you to come again because we'll give more updates about where we are in the process. Even this week, even this week like, exciting things have been happening, and I look forward to telling you more about them uh, on March 10th. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to the book of John, chapter 4. John, chapter 4. We're going to be in chapter 6, reading from verses 1 through 21. I think oftentimes we are in the habit of confusing our wants and thinking that they're needs. It's kind of an obvious thing, right? We think we have this want, we have this desire, and instead of categorizing it as this is a desire that I have, we speak of it in the terms of I have this need. We can do that on all different levels. Here's a pretty simple one. I'm a coffee drinker. I like coffee in the morning. I like to drink a pot. When that pot's done, I like to make another one. And whenever I'm about to go to bed, I like to wind down with a nice hot cup of coffee. Uh, It's just who I am. Sometimes, sometimes I will go all day and I'll get to home and I'll be at home. I'm ready to wind down. It's eight o'clock. The kids are sort of in bed. And I think, man, I I don't think I've drunk anything that hasn't been filtered through some type of like bean or tea leaf. And that's all I've had all day. So my mind says, I need a cup of coffee. But what's the reality? Reality is I really need some water. I need I need something to sustain my life. And we do this all the time. I do this whenever my wife leaves for a trip. It doesn't happen very often. I wish it could happen more where she could just get away and enjoy herself, but it happens every now and again. She'll go out to be with friends or she'll go overnight to stay with a sister and have some fun. Uh, and I'll be at home. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to be responsible. But that's not what happens. I begin to deceive myself with my desires. I start to think, I really need to unwind. I really need to just like release and escape and, and just like treat myself for a little bit. And so what do I do? The kids go to bed, and I, I tell myself, I'm only going to watch one show. But then at 2 a.m., I'm thinking... My son wakes up like at 5, 5.30 sometimes. I really need sleep. I confused my want, thinking that my want was a need. Don't we all do this? Throughout our lives, every day, on a daily occurrence, we do this. We do this with our finances. This is how I need to spend my money. When really, no, that's how you want to spend your money. This is what I need in this relationship. Well, no, really, that's what you want in this relationship. We confuse what we want and we think of it as a need. When we read John chapter 6 today, what we find are two different groups of people. We have the group of the disciples and we have the crowds that are following after Jesus. And both of them have these wants in their life, But they are confusing them, and they are thinking that they are needs. And what we find is that Jesus confronts both groups of people and says, I am not going to give you what you think you need, because that's merely a desire. What I want to do is give you what you truly need. So let's go ahead and read our passage today. It's a long one, uh, 21 verses, but man, I just like reading Scripture. So we're going to read it all. Say so John chapter six, if you're in the Black Bibles and the pews, it's on page 891. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They wanted to see the spectacle. They wanted to be entertained. What's Jesus going to do today? Verse three, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This is the second one. There's three Passovers throughout the book of John. The first one is back in chapter 2. We have this one in 6. The third one is whenever he is crucified. It was this time, it was the time of the Passover. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus turned to Philip. He said, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that we may feed these people and that they may eat. He said, to test, he said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, they just didn't get a bite. Oh, there's an amber alert. <laughs> so, we recognize that sound. It's all good. Sorry. Um, mine went off earlier this morning, too. Um, where were we? So they didn't just get a bite like Philip had said. 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to feed all these people with just one bite of bread. But here, with these, with these couple of fish and these five loaves, it says that, the, that all the people were able to eat their fill. So when they, and so then Jesus said, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. Verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him the king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat, and they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him onto the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray not only for this time and the word, but we pray for this day and for all the things that are going on. That amber alert that just went off reminds us, Lord, that there are broken lives, there are things that are going on that are beyond our control that bring us to worry, that bring us to fear. And so, Lord, we ask that your sovereign hand be over these situations, especially those situations that are occurring in our church. We pray for the family who's worried about a diagnosis that they just got. We pray for the family who who just had surgery just, just the other day, this week. We pray for the treatments that people are going through. We pray for marriages that just seem to be on the rocks. We pray for people as they try to figure out relationships and how to live life, or maybe even living life on their own. Lord, there are just so many varied ways that we're trying to figure out life. and Father, we need you, and we need Jesus to help us through this. Be with us as we discuss this passage this morning. Give us insight, give us clarity. Lord, help us to look more like Jesus as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We need Jesus. Sermon point. I I got kind of lazy with my sermon this week, so my first point is sermon point. Uh, (laughs) Let me turn this thing on. Oh, now we're both working. Here we are right here. So the first thing we see, how Jesus confronts our wants. Yeah, you know, we think they're their needs, but Jesus is saying, this is just a need, this is just a desire you have, but I want to give you truly what you need. The first thing we see here is that Jesus is going to challenge a comfortable faith. Jesus is going to challenge a comfortable faith. I don't know what your personality is, but this is my personality. I like to be comfortable. I oftentimes will organize my life, and I will organize my schedule as much as I can in order to be at ease. And this is true with my schedule, but it's also true with my faith. I don't like being put in awkward and unpredictable situations. I don't like being stretched. And I think most of us are this way. We want to go through our simple routine to know what comes next. But what we find in John chapter 6 is that Jesus is not content to give us what we need. Jesus is not content to let us live this life of a comfortable faith. But what he wants to do is he wants to challenge us. And we see this in verses 1 through 5 or 1 through 9 whenever Jesus is talking with Philip. Whenever we come to this, this, this picture in the Bible we see that Jesus is beside the Sea of Galilee, kind of on the eastern edge of the sea. And like oftentimes Jesus would go up to a mountainside, he would gather his disciples around him and he would begin to teach his disciples. And I just imagine this picture where Jesus is teaching his disciples and the disciples start to notice something off to the side. It looks like a little plume of smoke, but what it is is just a dust cloud. A dust cloud being formed by the thousands of feet coming their way. And before they realize that this crowd, this immense crowd, they can't even see the end of the crowd, has gathered around them. And Jesus looks to Philip, his disciple. Philip was from a nearby town. And I'm guessing this is why Jesus chose Philip. He said, Philip, uh, th- these people here, they're hungry. Where, where can we buy some food? to feed all these people. Now, did Jesus ask Philip to feed these people? Did Jesus ask Philip to solve this problem? No. All Jesus did is said, Philip, where would we go to buy food for all these people? You're a local guy. You know where the markets are. What was Philip's response? Philip's response was not, well, us just down the road, and they have a market. There's a square there. There's usually some food. Is that what he did? No. He said, Jesus, there's no way. There's not enough money in any of our pockets to be able to feed these people with even one bite of bread. 200 denarii is eight months' worth of wages. He said eight months' worth of wages would only give them One bite of bread. And as the crowds came out, we're told told that that there there are 5,000 men. Most scholars believe that 5,000 men probably equated to about 20,000 people. And he looked at what Jesus was asking of him, of saying, where can we buy food? And what this did is this stretched Philip. It stretched his faith. And this is what Jesus was doing. It says here in the verse, it says that Jesus asked Philip this, To test him. Do you realize that if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is going to test your faith? He's going to stretch you, He is going to put you in unpredictable circumstances, He's going to put you in awkward circumstances because He loves you. Faith is like a muscle. This morning, I, I woke up early. I needed to kind of run through my sermon one more time. So I tried to beat the kids up. And, and my son, Jim, woke up first. And uh, so what that means is, is he got a pre-sermon. I sat him down in the chair. I said, all right, son, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practice my sermon on you. And, uh, and we got to this point in the sermon. I said, show me your muscles. And he like busted out this big old muscle on his arm. And I'm like, well, how do you get muscles? And, and the way that you get muscles is you have to stretch your muscles. You have to work your muscles. You have to exhaust your muscles. And if your muscles are going to get stronger, you have to exercise them. Faith is similar to this. Faith is a muscle that must be exercised. And if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is going to test your faith. I think he does this in three different ways. How does Jesus exercise our faith? He does it in three different ways. I think one of the ways that Jesus exercises our faith is by calling us to holiness. To be holy means to be set apart, to be different from the world. So what this means is to be holy means that we are pursuing the morals that God has set forth in Scripture. We're pursuing the commands that He has given us. And our faith is tested When we sit in a sermon or we're reading our Bible and we are confronted with some scripture that contradicts our life, and we are going to come to a point of testing, we're going to have to ask the question, is my sin, or what the Bible is calling sin, am I willing to let it go? Am I willing to repent of it? Am I willing to follow after Jesus? That's that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. And as we pursue holiness, as we continue to find sin in our life, and as we continue to kill sin in our life, this is is the Spirit's exercising power in us, growing our faith, growing our love, growing our devotion in Christ. My question for you is, do you have a sin in your life? We are saying, man, I, I just don't know if I'm willing to part with that. I don't know if I'm willing to let that go. because To be honest, I enjoy it. I desire it. If you want to grow in the image of Christ, we have to be busy, and we have to busy ourselves with killing the sin in our lives. The second way that Jesus exercises our faith to grow our faith is through obedience. If, if, if holiness is saying, all right, I'm not going to do the things that God has told me not to do, Holy or obedience is doing the things that God has called us to do. There are going to be many times when God calls us to do things and put us in circumstances we're not comfortable in. And once again, we try to organize our lives where that doesn't happen. Back for seven years at Grace Bible Church, I was a youth pastor, and, and I did my best um, not to look foolish. I don't like looking foolish. I don't, I don't like putting myself out there and being silly. That's just not my personality. So what we had to do is I had to find like some awesome youth volunteers, and you've got some awesome youth volunteers working with your kids who like doing that, and they would go do it. But what I did, I, mean, I didn't want to go there. But no matter how hard I try to escape unpredictable, unknown circumstances, God keeps pushing me towards those. Back when we were talking about what we were going to do next as, as a family, We didn't know if if we were just going to go and try and find a church to pastor somewhere else in Texas or if we were going to try and and stay local. Um, Dave encouraged us to stay local. and So what I fully expected is I would just go find another church in town who was needing a pastor and I would pastor them. But I think God was trying to test our faith. He was trying to stretch us because being at Grace, Grace is a church planting church. It's what we do. We've done it in Pearland. We've helped out with it in Copper's Cove. We've sent out other people in Colleen to help plant and start churches. But the whole time, the 11 years I've been here, I thought, man, that's just not me. That's not my personality. I'm not entrepreneurial. I'm not, I'm not out there. And I don't like to be up front. I don't like that. But I think the Lord was pushing us to where we are uncomfortable And so we have to follow that in obedience. One of the things we have to ask is, how is God pushing you? I think one of the ways that we do this and can talk about this is through evangelism. When we ask the question, are you obedient in telling other people about Jesus? I think most of us would probably say, no, I'm not. And we have to ask the question, why aren't we faithful? Why aren't we obedient when it comes to evangelism? it's because we don't want to be stretched we don't want to put ourselves in a position or in a place of fear and so we push back against that but what god is calling us to do is to follow him in obedience to step out on faith is how god builds and develops our faith the third way that christ will will strengthen our faith is not just through obedience not just through holiness but God will strengthen and exercise our faith through the pain of suffering. Many of you know this through personal experience. James chapter 1 says this, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, that whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance must have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing, Romans chapter five, verses three, three, 4 says that not only that, but we rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces even greater character and proven character produces hope. Know this, if you are going through a time of suffering and uncertainty about your life, know that this is one of the ways that God strengthens your faith, grows your faith and develops your faith. Ultimately, why your suffering has happened, I don't know. And I don't think we will always know on this earth. But we know one of the byproducts is God's faithful love strengthening us. Jesus loves you enough to not leave you alone. Isn't that what we want oftentimes? I remember growing up, sometimes I just wished my parents would leave me alone. Give me some distance. Let me do my own thing. But they loved me enough not to leave me alone, to continue in correction, to continue in discipline, to continue in encouragement. And that's what we need to do. The second thing we see is that Jesus also challenges our expectations. Jesus challenges our expectations. This is where we come into the second scene. We have the first scene of Jesus challenging the comfortable faith of Philip. Here, In verses 2 and 10 through 15, we see that Jesus is challenging the expectations that people were putting on him. All these thousands of people, 20,000 of them come, they sit down, they see that there's no great caravan of of, of food out there, there's no great banqueting table, they see a lunch box and they see Jesus. And then they see Jesus blessing the bread, breaking it, and passing it out. And I just wonder how low their jaw could drop as they saw more and more and more people eating that food. You know what happened inside of these people? They got excited. They got excited. We are told told here in verse 14, they said, "This, this must be the prophet. What the people of Israel were waiting for was a prophet, as a fulfillment of prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 15, where it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, among your brothers, and you must listen to him. So what the people of Israel were looking for is they were looking for the next Moses. They were looking for someone who had come with signs and wonders, and here they were, the very reason they followed Jesus in the first place was because he was doing all these amazing signs. And now, not only is he doing signs of healing the sick, now he was feeding thousands of people. And they thought, maybe this is the one who is the Moses, who will free us from our Egyptians. Because the nation of Israel was under oppression. The Roman Empire had come in, they had conquered, they were ruling over them with a, with, with a heavy hand. And they were kept thinking, man, we need freedom from this. And now here's Jesus. Here's a man who could raise the dead. Here's a man who could heal the wounded. Here's a man who could feed thousands upon thousands of people with some loaves of bread and two fish. And I just wonder if it crossed their mind of what a king. Like, really, does it matter how big? Rome is. Does it matter how many legions that Rome has if Jesus can just keep making our soldiers alive again? Does it matter how long the, the the train is to get to the front lines when Jesus can just make food? We don't have to worry about logistics. Here we are, we are sitting at the feet of the new Moses who can give us an endless supply of people for an army, who can give us an endless supply of food for for, for providing food for that army. Man, let's, let's go get Rome. Like, they were ready. So much so that in verse 15, it says that Jesus perceived that they were about to make him king by force. But it was a king that they wanted. It was not the king that they needed. And so Jesus separates himself away. He goes away to a lonely place by himself. I cannot blame the people here. I think I would have the same thought process. I think they saw something special about Jesus, something different about him, something unique and intriguing. They just couldn't submit their desires to his agenda. And I think the same thing happens today. We bring our agenda to Jesus. And we say, Jesus, make our agenda happen. Beautiful illustration of this is is by one of the church fathers. I wish I could remember which one. I would sound smarter if I could. um, But I can't. But if you have a pen you have your bulletin, this is what I want you to do. Simple illustration. I want you to draw three crosses. Three crosses there. We're told in scripture that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified between two thieves. And so, this ancient church father said that there were two just as there were two thieves on either side of Jesus at the crucifixion, there are still two thieves of the gospel today. So, at the middle cross, you can write Jesus above it and the gospel below it. If the middle cross represents Jesus and the gospel. There are two thieves on either side of that cross that are stealing from the gospel message. One side, you can write this. You can write license. What do I mean by license? License gives you permission. When I was 15 and then turned 16, I got a driver's license, which gave me the permission to drive on my own. If I were 007 and worked for, what was it, MI6, I'd have a license to Kill, yeah. I'd have permission to do that. So, one of the thieves to the gospel of Jesus Christ is this idea of permission. What happens here is we have our desires, we have the things that we want to do, and we think that Jesus is the means of giving us permission to do those things. We look at Jesus and we say, Jesus is loving. Jesus is forgiving. Jesus does not judge. And we think in terms of that way, in order to have our sins forgiven, to have them be acceptable, we're hijacking Jesus for our own agenda, just like the Israelites were trying to do. I was thinking about this last night. had this thought come across my mind. How do we know if we're falling into the ditch of license or the, or the, or the, the thief of, of license? How do we know if we're falling into that? This is, this is what I think. We have to ask ourselves the question, is my identity found in Christ or am I simply using Christ to justify my identity? Let me say that again. Is your identity found in Christ, or are you simply using Christ to justify your identity? Guys, Jesus is not going to play that game. He is not going to allow us to to hijack his name, to hijack his work, in order to justify our own works. Sorry, the weather is just changing all the time. I'm going to pause this and cough. sorry about that. All right, we're family, right? We, we can do stuff like this. So we, we have the thief of license. We use Jesus to justify our sin. think this other thief on, the, on, your, on your illustration you're drawing, you have Jesus in the middle, the thief of license on one side. We have another thief on the other side, and this thief's name is legalism. We say, I have kept the law, I'm accepted by God because of my obedience. And so you know what we begin to think? We begin to think that God owes us. I've obeyed you, Jesus. I've sacrificed for you, Jesus. Look what I have done. Why then are my desires not being met? And we simply use Jesus as a means to get what we desire more than Jesus. And just as Jesus does not play the game of license, he is not going to play the game of legalism. So what do we need to do? I think we need to do a couple of different things. One, if we want to to submit our desires to Jesus, if we want to submit our desires to Jesus, one of the things that we need to do is we need to make sure we have an accurate picture of Jesus. Jesus. We need to make sure we're reading the Gospels, reading Matthew, reading Mark, reading, reading Luke, reading John, that we're reading about Jesus, finding out what he was about, finding out what he was saying. It, it, it astounds me of what our culture says about Jesus, and it's true of Jesus. And I'm, I'm looking at the Bible saying, I, I can see clearly how you're taking this out of context. <laughs> this is not what the Bible is saying about him. But this is his word. This is how Jesus is portraying himself and if we want to get over our, our false desires, then we need to know what the Bible truly says about Jesus. This is a second thing I think we can do, a clear form of application. We have to realize that we can train our desires. We can train our desires. Just like whenever you have children and they're born, they are not born virtuous but we have to train virtue into our children. We correct them. We show them what is true. We show them what is right. We show them what is beautiful. And we do this throughout their lives. Just as you cannot, just how you can train virtue, I think you can also train our desires. I'm reading a book right now by James Smith. It's called You Are What You Love. It's a beautiful book where he really confronts the idea because we like to think that we're intellectual and as long as we have the right knowledge, then we're good. But he says human beings are much more complex than that. And we are less intellectual than we like to think that we are. But really, what drives people is not knowledge, but what drives people is desire. And the way that you train desire, he makes the case that the way you train desire is through ritual. through liturgy and he says whether you're in the church or outside the church people use liturgy in order to train your desires think about think about sports and athletics i think it's very clear here um i'm not an athlete i I swim uh, for the last what four or five months i've been swimming about three times a week and every time i get in the pool i can like see the downcast face of the lifeguards of them saying we're gonna have to get wet today Um, but I always enjoyed doing things in high school, uh, but I just—I I was one of the cynical guys who didn't want to buy in. But whenever I was in the athletics department, you could see the rituals that people would go through, the chants that people would say, how they'd all put their hands in and do the break and shout the name of their school. I, I was a Florence, Florence Buffalo, and so I had a coach. Every time he saw us, the first thing he would shout is, isn't it a great day to be a Buffalo? And these were just these normal, we never won, so I mean, if we were honest, we'd be like, not really. Um, <laughs> but, but, but there were these rituals that we'd go through. You'd run through the door to go to the court or to the field, and you'd hit the quote above the door. But these rituals were, were birthed into us. Why? It's because they were wanting to create a desire for competition, a desire for teamwork, we were one, we were unified, and we were going to destroy the other team who, were, who was out there. They created rituals and the liturgy to form our desires towards an end. Does this happen in the army? You guys can tell me better than I could tell you, but I see it. You're doing different things. You have ritual, you have a liturgy in the army where you do certain things to create a certain desire that you want to be doing something of, of honor, of bravery. You want, to, you want to have the army first in your life. And they do things to create that. Well, I think it's also true that we can do things in our faith to retrain our desires back towards Jesus. Let me give you a few of those rituals that we do. The first and primary ritual we do to retrain our desires is what we're doing right now. It's gathering with a local body of Christ, coming together to sing praises to a man named Jesus as a God. It's opening up the Bible and immersing ourselves with the truth of Scripture. It's coming before a table, taking a piece of bread and breaking it saying this is the body of Christ broken for you, picking up a cup, saying this is Jesus' blood for a new covenant, for the forgiveness of many sins. We do these rituals in part to retrain our desires and our longings for Jesus. I'm speaking to the choir because you're here, but if church and gathering with the saints is not a priority in your life, You're saying, I have greater desires that I'm going to follow more than Jesus. And you know as well as I do that probably one day a week isn't enough. So what we need to do is start to transfer the rituals that we do on Sundays, we need to transfer those to the rest of the week of breaking bread with one another, of being in the word, of praying and being together. These are the things that we need to do. Brothers and sisters, we we are at the end of the passage. What is the Jesus we need? It's not a Jesus who will give us our, our base desires. It's not a Jesus who will leave us comfortable. But the Jesus we need is a Jesus who is a Savior. Look at verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So what's happening here is is Jesus is about to walk on the water. The sea became rough because of strong winds were blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they just saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And rightly so, they were frightened. And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him onto the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What's going on here? They are seeing Jesus as a savior. Here are these disciples of Jesus who were sailors of the Sea of Galilee. This was their livelihood. This was their life. This was their occupation. They had seen everything out there on the sea. And here they were in a storm, and they were frightened. It tells us in other Gospels. And lo and behold. What do they see when the seas were were coming over them? But Jesus walking on the water towards them. And they did not say, Jesus, here are our desires. This is what we want. But it was more of a cry for help. We need a Savior. And look at what it says there at the end. Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at land. Read that. They were glad to take him. Brothers and sisters, it's my prayer for you is that when you consider Jesus, you will not be satisfied with where you are, but you will realize your true need for Jesus, and you will be glad to take him as he is. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you that you do not leave us alone in our own sin, in our own desires, but you have set us free from our desires through your work on the cross. Father, I pray that that we would continually stretch ourselves to know you more, that we continually submit our desires and our wants to what you say we actually need. May we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.